welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Welcome to another powerful, imperfectly perfect conversation for the Flourishing Education podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Dani Kristova. So she's a doctor and a clinical research physician, a specialist of menopause. She'll tell us uh, all a bit more in a minute, Um, but really her specialist interest is in menopause. And I've invited her on the podcast because I think it's a very important topic for us mothers in particular. So a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Fabienne. It's my pleasure. Yes, lovely to to, uh, have you here. So, um, I mean, you're going to be able to tell us a bit more about your own background and your training, Um, but... From my own experience, you know, I'm 47. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had my own experiences with uh, hormones playing up and not really understanding what was going on for me. Um, I guess my first, my first comment to start the conversation is, we don't, in the UK, we don't, we're only just starting to talk about menopause and to talk about the implications for for women, right? It is right. And I think it was, I I think there is this understanding that it's actually a fact already, there are already a generation of women who missed on the opportunity to go on HRT after the uh, world, um, the WHI study published in 2002 when the risk for um, having HRT was uh, misinterpreted to link it with, at the time, I think it was wrongly misinterpreted to link it to cardiovascular risk and the breast cancer risk without explaining what actually this risk is. Um, And many women just went off HRT, GPs were reluctant to prescribe. And years later, I think now there is better understanding of what is the impact if one doesn't start HRT. So um, the more knowledge is gathered now, we know that if we uh, don't supplement the estrogen and progesterone, if one has uterus, to um, actually enter the second half of our life, if we don't do this, then we have higher risk of osteoporosis, higher risk of cardiovascular disease, higher risk for continuing with the cognitive decline if one starts experiencing uh, effects on skin, mood. Um, and I, I can continue from there on relationships, on how we feel about ourselves. It, it just impacts everything. And I think there is more understanding that if we don't do this, if we don't do anything about the estrogen deficient state, which we enter for the second half of our life, and while we expect that we will have much longer life, it's, it's really, it was a missed opportunity. So I'm so glad that more people are interested in this and we have this opportunity to talk about it. Yes, and this is it. I so I think I'll talk with through my own experience. Um, I remember, so I'm someone who's naturally quite happy and quite positive. Um, and I remember several times really feeling like uh, really like dark thoughts is the way I could describe it. So having these really, really dark thoughts and several times thinking, actually if the boys went here I'm not really sure I would want to continue being here uh, and and I and weirdly I sort of remembered um, feeling like this when I was a teenager so in like 17 18 like feeling slightly yeah. similar so I was like oh could it be linked that it maybe it's hormonal rather than me suddenly becoming 
really yeah. you know those, those you know suicide ideation which is really not my usually things that I experience um and then after that I experienced you know a lot of sweating at night and you know not being able to sleep and you know putting on weight and then really foggy black head and then migraines that I just I, that would come like either just before um the end of my cycle or at the end of, of a period you know all of those things um and I initially my mom was was menopause quite young she was not even 40 when she was menopaused which you know to 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 some standard that might be considered as young and so when I went to see the uh, my, my GP initially she was quite dismissive so you know I was 42 and she said no 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 I don't think it is um, and she got me to do a blood test which came back you know it obviously didn't point to anything and just said, well, you know, um, I don't think it is, um, you know, if you want, we can, you can come back at a later stage and we can, if it continues and we can talk about, um, you know, maybe looking at HRT. But initially the conversation was really, really awkward and really difficult. And I know that I'm not alone, that loads of other people, um, you know, so, so, so my question to you, obviously you're, you're a doctor who specialised in menopause, um, but not many ge general practitioners, not many GPs in the UK are, I think that's changing, it's but not many, not many are, are, yeah. Yes, I'm not yet the menopause specialist, I'm not on the registry yet, I've done the initial training, but it's, um, it, in many ways I started with my personal story um, and a few years later looking back I'm thinking if I wasn't a doctor who has who knows where to look for the information it, it was going to be very similar situation to you and I think now that's also triggered the, the NICE guidelines were published 2015 and I remember at the time I had just started HRT and I'm thinking really 2015 that's the first time when we have actual guidance what was happening to women until then so you know it's um i, I just couldn't believe that that's um the first time when there was a document where there were more specific step by step so as you know in this document it was uh, that one shouldn't have just severe symptom, one shouldn't rely on the lab test results. It was enough if you if you have symptoms which really impact you and the periods are starting to become irregular, one shouldn't really uh, just focus on the blood test results. One has the reasons, to good reasons to start HRT. And I think this message is gradually getting to the GPs. I mean, it's been a few years since the guidelines came out, new update will come out as well but it, it took some time but oh, that's what i wanted to highlight it's not actually that long ago when the, the guidelines came out and um but on the other hand when we know that the guidelines are already there that's the nice guidelines national institute of clinical excellence uh, that's the reference document where the gps or other prescribers will go to to see what's um uh, the best standard of care. So now we know that um, in some cases, one really uh, informed discussion is just to, in my case, I found myself discussing with my GP um, when it was about what else I can, um, I can actually try because personally I went, I went through five different HRT types in order to find one which was actually most suitable. And I, I can totally relate. Um, I mean, I was very committed to continue with treatment regardless of what type of treatment, but I imagine other people, there was extreme breast pain over the first few months, irregular bleeds and everything. And it, it, it's easy to see why some people would think, oh, wow, that's not good. <laughs> um, and so that's that was from my I, I guess in my case, it was a little bit easier, and I'm sure maybe some of um, your listeners would relate to this. I think the difficulties 
even if we know about it, if we start experiencing it, it may be difficult to think in straight away, oh, that's uh, perimenopause. You know, especially if we have been, as you say, happy, healthy, fit, and all of a sudden that may be the last thing we think about. Um, in my case, um, I, I already was partially prepared because in my late 30s, I went through infertility investigations. So the account was extremely low and it, in a way, it was obvious. It's, um, it's around the corner. But even though I had this knowledge, it was, I was still taken by surprise. So, um, and it's interesting how different the first symptoms which make us want to look for help are. In my case, there were no the hot flushes. I just had the brain fog. And I, I thought that's, you know, for me, it's important to be focused. So mm -hmm. when I had the brain fog and it, it started, you know, it, it was coming and going and then it clicked. Oh, actually, I was having the night sweats as well, but it was almost it was happening before I realized that's what night sweats are. It, it's, it's just funny in retrospect, but it might be also symptoms we don't usually think about, such as uh, joint pains. I started having the joint pains and the headaches. And, you know, it, it appears to be separate things. But once we have the knowledge that it's a long list of symptoms which don't appear at the same time, they may come and go, but it's all because of the lack of estrogen or the dropping levels or the levels going up and down. Um, it's, um, it's, it, it can be quite different story for everyone, but at the same time, luckily there, there are treatments available, but I, I can relate to what you were saying that it's difficult to start and i've spoken to so many of my friends same age i i think we're still so burdened by this massive fear which became associated with hrt that it it, it was almost I, I remember how scary it was for some of them to even consider starting and then the difference between being on the HRT and compared to the period before was so massive that I, I know they also couldn't believe, oh, why did I hesitate? But yeah. And, and I think that this is, this is so true because this is exactly how I felt. So I knew, I mean, for me, the, the, the really the dark, dark thoughts were, were enough to trigger like I've got to do something on top of all of the others like brain fog like you you know when when you research or you want to be focused and you're teaching and you can't concentrate and you feel like your head is in like cotton wool yeah um, exactly but what's really interesting is so so I then you know spoke to this GP who just said well you know you could try HRT and she sort of explained and she she prescribed this HRT treatment and it stayed in the cupboard for a year. So I had it, I had like the patches and the, the you know, the, the progesterone to take and I actually did not take it. And the reason for that is what you described at the beginning. I was scared about the implications. You know, I've got a family history of blood clotting and, you know, uh, things like that so in my head I was like well what if I you know I take this thing and then I, I create so it was almost it had to get to a stage where the the side effects so I started having massive hip pain like really literally my hips was just yeah killing me and with all of the other symptoms I was like actually this is like this is it this is like when the hip started being painful yeah. I was like right there's too many symptoms that yeah. would that would tip over the well I'm prepared to take whatever risk yes absolutely um, yeah and it's it's completely mad because like I said you know the minute I started the treatment I was sleeping better you know yeah. and I was like I then spoke to to the, the, my GP sort of a bit further on to to reassess a few things, and she was asking me, and I just went, oh, "I so wish I'd gone on it straight away," and yeah. I didn't. Um, so, 
so I guess you know my you know my comment and my question to you is twofold is for the people you know for for the our listeners and not just for the the female listeners I think it's also important for our partners and and the men in our lives to understand what it what it is what's going on for us could you could you give us a definition of what menopause is and what it what it involves and why is it that because I've talked about you know you've talked about your symptoms I've talked about my my symptoms but why is it that it creates all of those negative effects in our body yes well the formal definition is that it's um, one is considered to be menopausal if they have been 12 months with no period and it's that's very specific definition meaning that if let's say one had irregular periods and there is one period, let's say over the last year when there was some bleeding, even not like a usual period, then the countdown starts from this, this bleeding in, let's say at some point during the year, even there were no regular periods. So um, therefore um, it's not that helpful to stick to oh, I need to enter the menopause in order to consider supplementing um, with estrogen and progesterone because that can continue until one has 12 months without period and then one is in the menopause. The less formal definition includes also the perimenopause and postmenopause, the whole period of transition because it happens gradually. The hormone levels just gradually while it's the premenopause, there seems to be more up and down. The levels are not fluctuating a lot. That's why we have the irregular periods. And this is why checking the levels of the estrogen and progesterone while we haven't entered menopause can be misleading because we can get them when they're high, then they may be very low a bit later, but we wouldn't necessarily have the test. Um, so that's why that's the formal definition. But what I wanted to, I already started explaining is that before we enter the actual menopause, the period of premenopause or perimenopause can be with lots of the symptoms which we associate with the menopause. Um, and they will gradually start getting worse or we'll have them for a bit and then they will disappear or get better, come back. So it's, for me, it's, I think currently there is more awareness that uh, in the perimenopause period, women do need support. Um, many may want to start HRT during this period. And then the doses will have to be adjusted later on. But if we, the reason why we have this is the changing in the hormone levels of the estrogen and progesterone. And yes, we may need to start with very small dose at the beginning when we are still not in the official menopause 12 months after the final period, but we still need, the body needs to have the support so that we have the, the mood balance and uh, the mental folk will disappear and all this will be sorted. Um, and obviously the postmenopause is the period which follows. Um, in your case, what I wanted to say is, um, you, you've, it sounds like you've been very lucky with what your GP prescribed. And I, I do, I mean, the GPs do great work. I think that what seems to be, uh, has been a challenge is if the GPs don't have enough time to, let's say they make the prescription to explain what you can expect with this specific preparation. Like in your case, you have already been prescribed to start with, with transdermal estrogen with the patch. So what we know is that the patch is not associated with any increase in the risk of deep venous thrombosis, thromboembolism. This is just if we take the tablets. So if you were told at the very beginning, um, we appreciate that you have this concern about this risk, that's that's really, there is a small increase if you take the tablet, but if you apply the gel or the patches, the studies show that the risk is the same as people who don't take HRT. So, I mean, again, when we talk about risk, just to keep in mind, there is the baseline risk. So we still may have some risk, 
but whether it would be increased by the medication, that's, um, that's what the study showed that we, uh, if we take it transdermally as a petrogel, we don't increase the risk of thromboembolism or venous thrombosis. And I often say, you know, getting up in the morning is a risk, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, you know, that's that's one one way to to think about risk. Of course, we don't want to increase the risk, but I think that's um, luckily these messages are filtering through um, a lot um, in terms of the breast cancer risk. It's um, comparing the risk of we we would have a breast cancer, which is associated with obesity, that there are 23 cases extra um, who would develop breast cancer per 1,000 compared to four extra cases per 1,000 associated with, uh, with intake of um, HRT. And, mm. and that's only for the combined. There are studies which already show that estrogen only, and that's usually for women who don't have uterus, estrogen only actually decreases slightly the risk of developing breast cancer. So there is this... Uh, relationship. So also uh, two glasses of wine per day increase the risk the same amount or even slightly more than actually taking HRT. You know, it's it, that's the relative, um, that's the the way we need to think about risk when yeah. we, but yeah. all, all, all this needs to be explained and yeah. uh, time is involved to invest the effort. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I really welcome so much opportunity to spread the knowledge because we we need to be um, we need to go into each consultation with all the knowledge we can get yes and I think this is why I'm so grateful you coming here to talk to us because very often you know that knowledge in I work you know not at the moment because I'm on a sabbatical but normally I work for a university and a lot of the the publications in journals are for academics and other academics to just write more yeah. of academic papers um, and and very often you know if we're not used to reading an, an academic journal or you know the, the an abstract it's really quite off-putting to sort of like yeah. understand all of the terminology so it's all really good to have um, you know you coming in and explaining to us um, in, in this way, it's really helpful. And you, you use the word transition. So that's something that I really wanted to explore with you as well, because not only that this is what I felt, um, you know, a, a, as a woman, there's also a, a transition into like, this is the next phase for my life as a woman so I've I've inherited I don't know if you can see but I've inherited my dad's gray gray hairs <laughs> um you know gray hair and and so I, I during lockdown I, I chose as I sort of like I was going through all of the you know the, the the challenges of like finding out what was going on with me I also chose not to color my hair anymore because I was like right you know it's a period of transition and I'm just gonna you know, embrace it and I think I mean I don't know whether you found that in your research but in effect it's not easy for a woman to go through this next phase of life because you you move from being you know you know for some of us for those of us who are you know lucky enough to have children or decide to have children right then it's the next phase. And sometimes that next phase requires you to, to accept. There's an acceptance, right? Do you find that with your with the people you've done the research? I did. Well, what I found, which um, it, it took me some time just to, to think about a bit, but clearly it's, it's something which uh, many women, I think historically has have decided to adopt this approach is you go through to, but that's my experience with talking to um, all the patients I had is, yes, it will be a difficult period of transition. One is entering the next chapter of one's life, but one needs just to tough it out, uh, bear all the discomforts, symptoms, and it, it will get easier later on. Um, and I think that has been a very misleading 
message or attitude which women have decided to, I mean, probably for lack of, uh, you know, lack of other opportunities and with all the fear of HRT in the past, because it's, yes, it, if one decides not to supplement, if the body needs to, so the body will adjust to work with the lower amount of the estrogen, um, but there would be the consequences. So if we talk about the transition is thinking, am I going to be happy at the other side of the transition? If I have decided to not to let my body supplement with the amount of estrogen, it will need to function properly. And am I happy to be at the other, to start the next chapter with increased risk of um, heart disease because the less estrogen, the more the um, bad cholesterol starts going up and this is blocking the arteries. So that's where the link is. We know that um, weight starts to, we, we put weight easier. We put it on easier um, and energy level will be lower. So do we want to accept this as the new norm? Do we want to accept the risk of dementia in the next chapter? Do we want to have fractures? And, you know, fractures, that means not all of them, not everybody may experience a hip fracture, uh, but it's enough to to think about we may change in height significantly and all this so the way i look at this transition is yes we need to accept that we're we're life continues but how do we want to be in the next chapter do we want to be active um with basically continue give the body the chance to continue functioning as it can and we need the fuel for this. I think we've, we've used this metaphor before. It's the estrogen is like the petrol in the car. We need it in order the car to run smooth. And when it starts going down, the, the body gives all these alarm signals. We, we, need, we need the fuel there. I mean, it's not just estrogen. There are the other hormones. It's the thyroid. We know that if we don't have the thyroid hormones, the body becomes more sluggish, weight, overweight, I mean, retention of water, well, the metabolism goes down. But estrogen is linked. Actually, less estrogen causes thyroid dysfunction as well. So it's all this is just signals that something is going on. And also, I think there is... Um, I think there are studies which look at the link between diabetes and um, and menopause, but in many ways, um, if we um, if the energy levels are low and we don't exercise, and that will lead to overweight, and that would increase the chance of diabetes. So it's it's really just to look in in this way. Uh, so it it could be. For some, for some women, again, based on my experience, the, the period with symptoms can continue for, um, I mean, they say the average is seven years, but it can continue 10 years or much longer. So um, we don't know. Um, no, no. Yes. And, and, and I mean, I, I think about, for example, my own mother, who clearly she was on HRT and then was taken off it's because of those threats because because of the yeah. the increase of you know her family heritage of of uh, you know potential more risk for for card of uh, cardiovascular diseases and clotting in particular um but now she's got osteoporosis so she's 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 got issues with her the bone density and you know and and none of that we we're not told any of that no. and and like you say as you age then you know you have to be so much more careful not to fall you have to become much more cautious um so so do you want to talk um you know maybe to to the what are the the implications for us in terms i mean you already have a little bit but in terms of um if we if we have low levels of um of hormones you know uh, what happens to to the body what are the consequences yeah yep. so um 
I will um, I will focus on what happens if we if we enter into the estrogen deficiency state. Um, with just the note that if, while we are in the perimenopause period, at the very at the beginning of it, the levels, as I mentioned before, can go up and down. So some of the symptoms before we uh, enter menopause um, may be as a result of too low or too high level of estrogen. But this is just before we start. So it's it's difficult to say at the very beginning whether it's due to too much or too low. But after we enter menopause and we enter this progressively lowering more and more levels of estrogen, then first of all, and I, I will mention some of the symptoms, not everybody will experience with the same severity, all of them. There's some lucky people, but um, many people will experience, I think, um, Currently, the statistics are about 75% of the women going through this transition period will experience symptoms which impact quality of life, and that's important. So I would start with, obviously, the hot flushes. We'll start before we enter menopause, uh, and they can be with varying severity. Uh, the studies were, which I was doing, um, there were the severe hot flushes were considered to be above seven to about 50 hot flushes per week. But I had women who would come and say, well, I have 14, I, I can't even count them, they're that frequent. This is extremely, I mean, personally, what I would say, if I'm at work and I have one hot flush per day, that would be enough. I mean, I wouldn't want to tolerate it, it can be so, uncomfortable. So to imagine that there's so many ladies who have to deal with at least 50 hot flushes per week, it's number one, night sweats. Um, night sweats are not just the night sweats. It, in, it impacts the quality of sleep. Uh, one wakes up, uh, yes, you, you, you do need to change the bed, uh, bed sheets, but um, it's just, it is also connected with problems with sleeping. It's uh, problems falling asleep, problems waking up frequently during the night. It's all as a result of the estrogen deficiency and to some extent progesterone as well because progesterone has this more sedating effect. So um, the next is, um, as we mentioned, the, uh, the risk of osteoporosis. Again, we don't just lose the bone mass all of a sudden. It's a gradual process which starts from, I think our highest bone mass is in our mid twenties. Then we gradually start losing a certain percentage per year. But when we lose the, protective, the protection of the estrogen, this very rapidly starts getting higher percentage of bone loss. So we don't go from healthy bones to osteoporotic bones, we go to through this transition of osteopenia, where there is already some loss of bone mineral density and the risk of fractures is already increased. So all this happens gradually, but we, we have no symptoms of osteoporosis, as you know. So for most people, it's they only learn they have osteoporosis when they break a bone and that is already too late. Um, because there, there are literally no other symptoms unless one has a DEXA scan and uh, the GP is not, I mean, they would send you after you have a fracture. So that's the osteoporosis. The heart problems, again, um, it, I, I mentioned that if we don't have enough estrogen, um, which is part of the metabolism, the healthy metabolism. It means that um, it is the levels of the bad cholesterol LDL will start going up, which would lead to um, deposits in the arteries. These deposits again gradually build up. It may be in the brain arteries, so higher risk of stroke, higher risk of heart problems, heart attacks. So all this increases with time. And as we know that um, in women before up to the age of 55, the risk of heart attack um, is lower compared to men. The reason why women's risk of heart attack stroke increases after that age is because women lose the protection of the um, estrogen. 
and that says something to keep in mind um and something which is close to my heart it's the cognitive abilities we, yeah. we want to stay mentally sharp and just it, not lose this um but I'm, I'm quite i still remember how the mental fog felt and it's it's horrible <laughs> um and it, it's it's something which um there are studies which show that if one continues with the estrogen deficiency state, um, it increases the risk of dementia later on. Um, I would say that's that's not specifically said. We mentioned about the um, joint problems, um, but also the feeling of fatigue, the metabolism is changed. So we may have less uh, energy. And I think that's one thing people notice once they start HRT. Uh, energy levels change. Um, I can talk more about the testosterone as well, but it's probably more um, targeting uh, women who are going through earlier menopause because it's um, it's more relevant. But um, before I say this, it's also something which is very rarely spoken about is the, the symptoms of vaginal dryness, um, we may start going to the toilet more frequently, waking during the night to go to the toilet, um, dryness, more frequent uh, urinary tract infections. And this comes like, it. you know, it's we think of menopause as hot flushes, but all of a sudden there is uh, pain during sex and all these may not be even considered as part of the whole picture of what the low estrogen is causing. And I, I know myself that it, it I, I can admit, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to discuss with my GP, what can we do about these symptoms? Because I was so focused on the, uh, the cognitive side. And it took a number of, at a very much follow up to follow up and down the line when I was seeing a private menopause specialist and she's, she said, okay, now with the libido, there are things which can be done. And that's when one needs to check the testosterone, but also one needs to consider um, the transvaginal estrogen. And um, I'm not sure if that would be relevant to the listeners, but it's um, also not contraindicated to women who also already had uh, breast cancer. I think that's what the healthcare practitioners need to uh, to know as well is that um, even if one had cancer, the transvaginal estrogen, it's a small pill, it's inserted basically transvaginal um, as, as a method of application, and it doesn't increase the risk for people who even breast cancer survivors, but wow. alleviates the symptoms. So it's, um, I think that's hopefully changing this approach that even those who had breast cancer already have options to consider um yes yeah no, it's, yeah it's really really useful and I think you know all of the things you were saying I was just thinking yes I mean I I remember so two things you said you know progesterones help sleep so I remember when I went on HRT I you know I went I went through a, a phase that's changed now but now you know, I used to take the the tablets like the the last part of my of my cycle, and the minute I I I took the tablets, literally I'd be like hitting the pillow <laughs> and I'd be fast asleep, and I really realized how deep I was sleeping compared to previously. Yes, yes, yes. At the, what I noticed as well, and it's um, and um, I'm generally more well. I would consider myself as a more anxious person. But I realized, and that for me was unexpected. Yes, sleep was much better. But the following day, I was just zen, <laughs> very calm. And I'm thinking, wow, it's, it almost changes the way one has perceived oneself in the years before. Because, you know, all this creeps gradually. And I thought, oh, well, okay, I'm getting stressed more. And that's part of life. But then all of a sudden, just supplementing progesterone and that's progesterone is the body identical hormone I, i'm just highlighting this because many of the pills contain uh, progestogens which are synthetic much stronger versions so if one wants to have 
um, really uh, more towards the natural, it would be really uh, what you have been taking, and I have to say I'm taking the same, it's, um, it's much more what the body is producing anyway. But yeah, it, it's just amazing. Um, things which we may not even expect to improve. Um, yeah. Can improve. Yeah. yeah. And and you said also another thing that I was quite lucky. So like with my GP. So I yes. think I agree. I think my GP has been amazing. Um, and and you know she's been really supportive. But even though she prescribed this this you know, this HRT after I spoke to her. Um, I, I then spoke to a private uh, menopause, so the, a nurse who'd converted into yeah. sort of specialising in, in menopause. And I had a, a conversation with her because I was going to book a, a, an appointment. And I said, well, my GP has already prescribed something. And she went, right, okay, tell me what it is. And I told her and she went, well, that's, I think that's perfect to start with. It's good. So, so go with that. And just having this conversation with this person I knew was an expert and had been recommended by yeah. um, somebody else made me take the steps. Obviously, all the all the side effects were getting worse and worse. So it was like, right, okay. Um, yeah. but, I, but I wonder how many of our listeners may be sitting here thinking, oh, okay, um, and not really feeling able to, uh, because all of those things, I mean, like talking talking o- openly about the symptoms we're experiencing as women, you know, like the, the vaginal dryness or, you know, or the loss of libido or, you know, how often do we openly discuss this? We may discuss this with a close friend, right? Or, but it's not really in our society, it's a little bit taboo, right? We don't really talk enough about it. Absolutely. I, I, hands up. I, I can admit, even though um, I, I, I think I mentioned I, I, I was already about five years on HRT and I didn't even it didn't even occur to me to say anything about the libido because obviously these things go down even before the symptoms. And I, I think people are different, but I think probably most women would relate. I think one tends to uh, direct it personally or may, maybe something is wrong with me and, you know, that's life. Uh, but I think it, what I found for me personally was helpful is when the menopause specialist asks specifically, how is libido? And then I realized, oh, maybe something can be done about it. And um, again, I think currently it's more likely the private menopause specialist to do this. I think it's still um, probably not going to be something the GP will suggest um, over the first year, Uh, but if, so usually the first step is um, if there is any um, problems like vaginal dryness, painful sex, there would be the transvaginal uh, estrogen tablets. But if this doesn't help with the libido, then one may want to check the testosterone levels. And I, I was absolutely amazed. I realized in my case, when the specialist checked, they were close to zero. They were non-identifiable, wow. non-detectable. And the difference which the testosterone supplement uh, made was probably the biggest one I saw over the whole changes in treatment. In terms of, uh, it, it wasn't actually, the libido wasn't what I was as impressed as. All of a sudden, it, 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 I felt young. I felt the energy levels, concentration, all this became like I was in my 20s. And I'm thinking, okay, how many women are thinking about testosterone? And I've I've been on a mission since then because I don't remember studying even when I was doing my medical training about the importance of the testosterone for women. No, because it's it's you think testosterone, you think men, men, right? You associate it with male. And and I think we we really we haven't been told that it's actually in healthy women, the levels of the testosterone are at least three times higher than the levels of the estrogen, uh, 
estradiol and the other estrogens. So how many of us know that women produce more testosterone than estrogen? And it's starting from there. Yes, of course, we have many times less than men, but men also have estrogen. But it's this talk about testosterone being the men, men, male hormone and estrogen, the female, it, it's almost like it doesn't exist for women. And I think that's one of the things I would really like to, uh, to mention, just because I think at that point, we also need to, to start thinking about this. And I did, I did mention it's more relevant to women who go through early menopause, because for those who go through um, menopause a bit later, testosterone levels decrease much slower than the estrogen. So it's um, the symptoms wouldn't be that obvious. But for those who are actually going through it much earlier or who have um, surgery when the uterus is removed and the ovaries, that would be when it would the symptoms would be obvious straight away. And still I haven't heard many patients who had the surgery in the past and have been offered testosterone as well. So it's, uh, it's still something more information needs to be, the information needs to be out there. And I think it's, it's getting there, but it's still quite a shock for many women that it's, um, it's a hormone to keep in mind. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So I guess, what would be your advice if um, any of our listeners were thinking, oh, I'm not sure, how, how would you, uh, how, how should one approach it with like, is, is it better to talk to a GP? Is it better to go and pay for uh, someone, you know, to see someone privately? What would you recommend? I, th I think it's always good to start with the GP. Uh, GPs are getting more and more training in this area. And um, I would suggest it's probably easier in many ways to discuss with the GP because as, as you see, you have been lucky. I'm sure there are many uh, other patients who have GPs who, who know what would be the, the best treatment for women and oh, which one would be better under certain conditions. Um, and then to keep in mind that it, it is normal not to have, one shouldn't, expect really everything to go perfect straight away. It's normal to have to switch to a different product if one doesn't tolerate one, maybe switch a few more. It's really a process. So if we shouldn't be discouraged if we, if we need to switch a few times from one product to another, that can happen. And it's just, we will know when we feel as we remember, we felt before all the symptoms started. So I would say that's something to expect. And it's, um, well, something with the transdermal ones, it's um, the freak, especially when they are continuous administration, it's more frequent to experience um, unscheduled bleeding. So that can happen. And that just means that the dose has to be adjusted. So again, I'm saying this because from the statistics I've seen, um, more than 45% of the women stop HRT because of frequent unscheduled bleeding. And I think that just means that the dose needs to be reviewed and addressed rather than just coming off. Um, and I know the GPs would also, if one mentions this, they will send uh, the woman to have um, a transvaginal ultrasound to see if there are, any, there are no abnormalities. In the lining, they will also, if needed, there would be endometrial biopsy. So there is a very good process of if one experiences this, all this has to be checked. And GPs are very good at um, actually making all these appointments. Um, and if things are not going as one expected, GPs can also make a referral to the secondary menopause care. These are the NHS menopause specialists which I know now with COVID, obviously it might have been difficult to get appointments, but it's, um, it's a referral process which works quite well. So it's really, I'm saying this because it, it's possible to get to a menopause specialist when the GP refers you. There are all these wonderful menopause specialists who are private and one can just go straight there. 
um, so the options are there. We just don't, we shouldn't give up that yeah. main message. Yeah, and also it's really important for those who can't afford the private the yes. private stuff, you know, um, for, for, you know, my, my thing would be, you know, don't let that put you off and actually, and, and talking, the other thing that came up to me when you were talking is if we want our GPs to be much more um, savvy and to understand menopause, we also need to go and share with them so yes. they, they get their own understanding through the patients, right? Yes. So we learn together. And, and I think GPs are great because they really want to help the patient. So if one wants to discuss uh, information which has been heard or just to, to have more information from the GP, they would always be happy to, to look at any information the patient has. Um, I could say that um, at the British Menopause Society website, BMS um, is having lots of educational resources and tools, not just for the clinicians, but it's just a summary of all these guidelines I mentioned. I mean, they're really heavy documents, uh, 100 pages with lots of clauses, so very difficult to read, but they have summarized it, them on two pages. So if one wants to see what actually should be expected as, um, oh, just to have the very thorough, um, knowledge presented in a very nice format. I would say the PMS website is perfect and they've been doing great in terms of education of the GPs and all healthcare practitioners. So amazing. We can put the links to those yes. and then people can go and consult that. Um, and then you know another question I had for you is obviously we've got we now have female politicians who are campaigning for yes. right so I saw this um I can't even remember what political party she's she's from so apologies to, to, to the to the lady I don't know if it's Labour or Conservative but I watched this uh real uh, moving statement from this politician who's just saying my goodness, you know, I was going through all of those things like yes. we described at the beginning. And then I I was given a solution and it was just like night and day. So I, I find that really exciting that that in policy. Yes. So do you want to talk to that, talk about like what, what the effects that has had in terms of policies and, and approaches? I, I, I think what we are seeing more is um, because the fact is it um, it becomes an issue for most professional women when we reach the peak of our professional career. And I think that's a good thing because there would be uh, many women who would be at positions, as you say, in parliament and they can do something. So there, there is a lot being done recently uh, to, to have guidelines in terms of menopause support at the workplace. And this is also because what is known is that a big number of women with severe symptoms who may have been, you know, in the previous wave of the fear of starting HRT um, and who, who just accept that this is period when you just have to tap it out and uh, wait until the other uh, side comes. Uh, they just quit their jobs and knowing that this can happen or they just want a little bit of flexibility and uh, maybe a bit of adjustment. Uh, this hasn't been possible just because they have menopause. So there has been uh, that they would prefer to be diagnosed with something else like de depression or just be off sick for other reason rather than address that this is part of um, the menopause, which needs to be just addressed with flexibility and understanding from the manager. So I think a lot has been done recently to, uh, to have work policies, which would make it easier to educate the line managers, what's the best approach. So I think that's the one of the positives of having women in uh, positions of power where this can be done. Um, again, with with the rest, I think it will be, there is already on the agenda anyway to have more menopause, menopause specialists, so more women to have access to specialists because GPs may just not have enough time 
Um, so I think lots of good things will come out of it. And hopefully, you know, podcasts like yours, just more information to get out there so that women know before it 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 hits it hits us. Um, I'm just thinking something which impressed me a lot. It was another menopause specialist talking about that for some patients, it may feel like falling off a cliff in terms of the start of the symptoms. And I, I think that's what resonated with me is, yes, we know, yeah, these symptoms will appear when we start entering the period, but it may feel so sudden that even though it's some of the symptoms were coming gradually, when they are fully blown symptoms uh, expressing themselves, it would literally feel like drop off a cliff. And we want to be prepared to know what we can ask from the GP, to know that it doesn't have to be just one year after the last period and the lab test result shouldn't be really used as a guidance. If we have the symptoms, periods are abnormal, we have the right to discuss it with the GP and discuss HRT options. Yeah. And, and to me, that would lead to the one final point I'd like to explore is obviously, you know, my podcast is Flourishing Education. So it's like the, the, the parents, so the, the, the mother, but also, you know, if we have partners and we have children, I think it's really important also for, for women to have a supportive network of peer, their peers to whom they can talk, obviously yes. other women, like, you know, being privileged to have this conversation with you. Um, but also, you know, to be able to discuss with our partner and with our children so they understand what's going on. Yes. Do, do you think that's really important too? I think it's important and it's probably is a worthy challenge to take uh, because my my impression is that because it has been a such a taboo, the, a, a taboo topic over so many years. I mean, I have a teenager son. He, I mean, his attitude is almost like it's something he's ashamed to talk about. So clearly I'm doing my best, but I realize it's, it, it, it's breaking the taboos to start with um, so that it, it becomes something which is normalized. It's not a taboo, it's we, we can openly discuss this. Um, and it, it's, we may not, get understanding like the way we want from the male partners or kids but that's why i think the peer support network is is so important because we find most of the challenges or difficulties which we had probably many other people women there would have had as well and it's it's empower very much empowering if we see what can be done uh, even if one has suffered uh, with lots of the symptoms, what difference it makes to do something about it um, and just spreading the knowledge. Yes, and also for our male colleagues, right? So yes. I know that at work, it's really awkward to sort of like start talking about um, how we are feeling. But I remember when I first started having you know, those weird symptoms and feeling really low, uh, I remember walking in my office and just crying my eyes out and feeling really, really low. Um, and, and, and then, you know, bumping into a colleague and feeling really awkward because it's just like, you don't really want to have to explain what yeah. you're, 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 you're experiencing and, you know, what you were saying about having that support. I think it's so important because what I, I remember one of my friends saying that, she went through a phase where she she'd gone part-time because she wanted she was feeling tired and um and then she really felt she couldn't handle she's quite a high high sort of flyer in this in this yeah. company and she, she I remember her saying to me and I just felt I wasn't able to handle the work like the workload and 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 I just thought maybe that's it maybe I need to give up my job exactly um, which is such a shame because yes. she obviously got yes. the treatment she needed and she's yeah. fine now. Um, but I wonder how many women who haven't known, like you say, have, you know, either because our parents or our mums, 
Now, when I spoke to my mum about thinking of going to HRT, her first response was, don't do it because it increases your risk of cardiovascular disease. And I was like, well, that's not really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in fact, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. So it, it's, it's really, we, we just need to, to get the information out there, especially if there are so many myths associated with HRT. So it's, it's you know, if, if one has accepted the myth as a fact, then we just need to present the, the current evidence. But yes, lots can be done. Uh, for the sake of all the women who gave up their jobs and just to show that things can be different. Yeah, and, and also for what you said. So for me, I was reading Mary Bateson's um, book uh, around like second adulthood and the fact that we, you know, we've got more to contribute. And yes. that's how I felt. It's like, I just want to contribute more. Yes. So it's so important. I think, I think you know, empowering women and empowering our peers through like conversations like this is so so important right so we can do the best our best self exactly and i i have to say i think it's with having the knowledge knowing what we we, we can have and actually we are entering even a better period of our life because then it's we one realizes well when i know that i can i know what's going on i can have just I can supplement what my body needs we're becoming more first attuned with with our body needs but then we we just can continue developing further and it just really that can be much better period of our life yes and so, it's like yeah flourishing yes so it's like proper flourishing where you just uh, you know it because that's really important right if we're not flourishing then forget relationships yes. forget work yes. forget anything else true yeah. and it yeah. is benefit for everyone as you said partners would appreciate it and also with the managers at work if, if they don't know what to expect and how to help it's tough on them as well so this is why it's really it would be good to have more information reaching more people amazing thank you so much so one thing i'm taking from this conversation is what you said as well that it's it has to be an exploratory approach where you know one should you know and and feeding to what you've just said so for me um, i'm always keen to emphasize that there's not a one size fits all that we all unique individuals yeah. that our bodies are like little yes. ecosystems right so um, yes that that exploring what works for us as individuals is really important yes and it it, it also gives us more energy and the ability to i mean when we feel well within ourselves we are more likely to take better care of ourselves too i mean it all it's best of course if all gets goes together then we are more likely to eat healthier to go out more um so yes, it, we are not talking just about HRT, but it's very often if we if we decide to um, if we deal with what the body needs in terms of uh, supplementing these hormones, we're also on the right track to to have all the other areas working better. So yes, amazing. So um, uh, Dr. Danny, before I let you go. Um, I always ask my guests at the end of a conversation, if there was one thing you would want people to listen, to take away from our conversation, what would it be? There are probably many things I want to say, but based on what we discussed and knowing what experience other women have had when they first wanted to address um, their menopause symptoms is don't give up. Um, know what your symptoms are, know you can get treatment. And even if you have to book another appointment, gather enough information. And if you have the symptoms and if the periods are irregular already, then you have all the reasons not to uh, delay, but have a discussion with your GP. Uh, that would be probably number one. And uh, it, it just to remember it affected all areas of our life it's easy sometimes to say yes that would pass 
but it's it's good to, to think as a whole picture uh it's down the line how we want to be in five ten years if we have the long life we can so just thinking taking the long-term view as well of what's the benefit it's not just the hot flashes it's uh, the effect on the heart the benefit effect on the heart on the bones on uh, the brain function on the uh, bladder system it's on the skin every everything is affected so just to think in as the whole body because some women may not have even the hot flushes so they may think oh well i'm actually fine but it's um think please about the whole body and that's uh, that's probably i'll end up with these two things at that at that stage amazing thank you so much oh, you're very welcome it's been such a pleasure fabian thank yeah. you no thank you thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoy our podcast please subscribe and leave a review on apple podcast or follow us on spotify you can also reach me via Twitter at Flourishing Heichi on LinkedIn or you can join our private Facebook group Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.